It's found in Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bible, please follow along with me. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sanhedrins came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of the men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, uh, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, what power or name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we were being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's very good to be back with you again. And I must say it's even more comforting to know that even now, thousands of miles away, that our pastor is in prayer for us. In fact, just before the sermon, or excuse me, just before the service began, I got a text message from Mike just simply saying, praying for you, M. And uh, I took great comfort in that and and was quite astonished. I wasn't even sure he knew how to text message or what that was. So... uh, it's, uh, it's very encouraging to know that, and it's good to be back with you again. Uh, of all the things that have been said about our Lord Jesus, one of the things that is rarely thought of is that he probably wasn't the greatest strategist in the world. At least that's what I think some people would have you believe. If you think back to some of the plans that our Lord had established for achieving the ultimate ends that he wanted to see, at least in terms of the way that we think about strategy, quite often it's counterintuitive. Jesus said, if you want to win this war with sin, you need to surrender. If you want to win, surrender. If you want to be first, then do what? Be last. And if you have been entrusted with the pronouncement of the coming kingdom of God, then go find yourself 11 ordinary folks, common fishermen. Don't get the politician. Don't get the the orator. Don't get the one schooled in the classics. No, go, go find some scarcely educated fishermen. Spend three years with them and send them on their way. 
The truth of the matter is, though we may not seem well-educated in common strategy to achieving the ends he intended, it was perfect. In fact, in his great providence, it was designed exactly the way that he wanted it to be done so that the Father and the Son, together with the Spirit, might gain the glory that is rightly due his name. And as we come to Acts chapter 4, as this movement is progressing, as this experiment in establishing the church and the kingdom of God is being born, we find two of the most powerful voices in the movement at a moment of truth. I tell you, I hear it all the time, and and folks that work with us hear it all the time, that that the common complaint about the scriptures is that they're boring. I I, I cannot count the number of times I've heard kids tell me that I'd really like to read the Bible, but it's boring. They haven't read it. They haven't read it and really understood it because here in this passage in particular, we have high drama. We have some of the greatest theater that has ever been produced because we have Peter and John, the one who Jesus loved and the assumed spokesman for the group at a crossroads, at a make-or-break point. Yes, the Spirit has fallen at Pentecost. And yes, the, the believers are beginning to be mobilized. And here we find Peter and John facing the persecution that Jesus promised would come. And so as we, di- as we dive into this, I, w- I want to invite you to do this with me. And, and it may be uh, you know, something that takes a little bit of effort. But I want us to find ourselves like a fly on the wall in the court of the Sanhedrin. It, it, I tell the kids, if, if you have to close your eyes to imagine it, do it, but don't fall asleep. I want you to find yourself here because if we can in our minds, put ourselves in the room with Caiaphas and Annas and Peter and John and the guys who were surrounded in this court, we see something way more dramatic than a few good men. You want the truth? You want the truth you can't handle. The truth. Listen to what we find here in verse 5. This courage that we find in the face of great evil. We read that the next day, after proclaiming the truth of the coming kingdom in the court, the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law were gathered together. And they have Peter and John, and they're brought in before them. And you remember, now, this is not their first meeting. This is not the first meeting that Peter and John have experienced with Caiaphas and Annas, right? Where was the first time? Do you remember? It was in uh, Captured Force in John chapter 18 verse 12 and 13, as Jesus is brought in before who? Caiaphas and Annas. And this mock trial that was going to take place right before the crucifixion would begin. Jesus is brought in before Caiaphas and Annas in in John chapter 18, uh, 12 uh, through 14. And he's heard the charges and they wash the hands of them. They send Jesus out on their way. And who is in the background? Do you remember? Peter's warming himself by the fire. He doesn't want to get too close. He's done what already? He's denied Christ. He had his chance. He had this first moment of truth 
presented to him, and he failed miserably. Completely blew it. And I have to imagine that as Peter is watching and experiencing this, and now as he's brought in before the Sanhedrin again, memories of that mock trial must have flooded his memory. Right? He blew it once. And rarely do you get a second bite at the apple. These memories come washing over them, and I have to imagine that he's conscious of the outcome of the first trial, right? What was the ultimate outcome of the first trial? Jesus was sent to the cross. He paid the penalty that was rightly due you and I. From a human perspective, that trial ended kind of bad. It ended in death, even though that death was the ultimate glory to which we hoped for. I'm not sure they could really expect justice. I'm not sure that they could really hope that the outcome would be much different. And as they take their place at center stage, facing down this court, you can almost hear the sneer in the voice, can't you? But by what power or by what name do you do this? The faulty assumption that it was Peter and John doing anything. So we're told in the very next verse that Peter is what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, life is full of defining moments. Moments that define from this point forward what life will be like. How you'll be perceived. What people will think about you. How you'll be remembered. Nike is running this amazing commercial right now uh, involving the Olympic sprinter Derek Anderson. I don't know if all of you have seen it or maybe remember the Olympic trials that took place several years ago. But it it involves this Canadian uh, sprinter by the name of Derek Anderson. And Derek had spent his entire life training to be an Olympian. He had every goal that he had set, every long practice session spent on the hot court had been pointed to this time trial which would determine whether or not he made the Olympic team. So Derek takes his place in the blocks. The gun goes off and he takes off running. Makes the first quarter mile. He rounds the second quarter mile. And in between the second quarter mile and the third quarter mile, he feels a terrible pop in his hamstring. He collapses on the track. In one instant, everything that he had worked for was gone. No time trials. His last shot at him. His dream's over. And in this moment, I think we see a defining revelation about what was in the character of Derek Johnson. Crying out in agony, he pushes himself back up and on one leg begins to hobble his way around the track in his lane. If he leaves his lane, he's disqualified. He makes it three or four steps and collapses again. And then you see 
this guy in the stands, a little bit heavy set fella, making his way out of the stands, pushing his way past the guards on the track, and making his way out onto the court. Who is it? It's his dad. It's his father. He breaks his way out and he puts his arm around his crumpled son on the track and he tells him, son, you, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And Derek looks up at him and he tells him, yes, I'm going to finish this race. I'm going to finish what I started. And his father looks at him and he says, then I'm going to help. So he puts his arm around his shoulder, puts his other arm underneath his back, and together his father and Derek complete that last quarter mile across the finish line. He didn't make the Olympic team. But in that moment, we saw more about what was on the inside of Derek Anderson than any Olympic gold could have ever produced. Life's full of defining moments. Martin Luther, as he spends that sweaty, sleepless night before facing what could be his eventual excommunication from the church, forced to recant the positions that he had taken. We know the outcome. He stood before him. Here I stand. You know, I think back even in my own life. I think about the things and the way in which I grew up and the, the pressures and the temptations that I faced, which were, which were great um, growing up in a, in a family that had, had a lot of issues with drug addiction and drug abuse. And, um, and I think back in my own life. And, and the funny thing about defining moments is very rarely are they, they these great shining examples of, of what you might think they look like. Very often they're small and seemingly insignificant and it comes down to a simple choice of do I do this or do I do this? Do I spend time with this person or do I spend time with this person? And from those simple choices, the trajectory of your life moves forward. In Acts chapter 4, I think we have a defining moment. By what power by what name do you do this? With every reason to believe that they are going to receive the same treatment that Jesus received. I have to believe that something on the inside of Peter began to well up. That tightness that gets in your throat when you realize that if we're going out today, we're going out with a bang. <laughs> and he stands before them and no holds barred. He says, rulers and elders. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And this man stands here. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name by which, under heaven, given to men, by which men must be saved. I have to wonder where this kind of courage comes from. I have to wonder where this kind 
of faith comes from, especially from a guy whose history we know in Peter, who has a propensity for putting his foot in his mouth or for shying away. Where does this come from? Well, I think what we have in these verses is a fulfillment of the promise that God has given us. If you have your Bibles, go back to Luke. Go back to Luke chapter 21. Again, in this waning days before Jesus will go to the cross, we have just a wonderful recount of how Jesus spent his time, of what he did with his guys. In chapter 21, listen to the reminder and the warning and the promise that Jesus gave his disciples. Luke 21, beginning in verse 12, he says this. But before all of this, they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They'll deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And this will result in your being a witness to them. But make up your minds beforehand not to worry how you'll go about defending yourselves. For I will give you the words and the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed by even your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you guys to death. But all men will hate you because of me. Not a hair on your head will perish. And by standing firm, you will gain life. You know, it's no mistake that what had happened previously in chapter 4, that this man had been healed... It's no mistake that that had taken place. God was setting the table. God was stacking the deck so that when given the opportunity to be called before the highest court in the land, that Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, might be able to declare to the highest court the witness of Jesus. And it is a fulfillment of the promise that he gave to them in Luke 21, that he'd set the stage, that they had an opportunity to boldly go before this men, these rulers, this cream of the crop, religiously, or so it was perceived, and that by standing firm, life might be granted to them. It's in these defining moments, it's in these moments of truth where the gospel is sounded and lives are changed. What do you, what do you think was going on in that court as the man who had been healed is standing there? How amazing is that? If it's for showing an act of kindness to this man that we're brought in, then let it be known that this man was healed because of what the gospel had promised beforehand. You know, I know that in John 20 and 21, Jesus had restored Peter. You remember he denied him three times on the beach. He says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You remember that story? I know that Jesus had forgiven and restored him right there, but I get the sense in some way that what had taken place on Pentecost in the sermon that Peter preached there and what he had the opportunity to make up for here in this verse, I, I believe that it was somewhere in the back of his mind a chance to redeem himself, a chance to make up for it. 
And if he's going down, he's going down swinging. And friends, I think what you and I have to learn as we face these moments of truth in our life is to somehow summon up a little bit of boldness, to somehow learn to rely, rely a little more fully on the power of the Holy Spirit and to somehow avoid the temptation of thinking that you and I are altogether different than Peter and John, right? Because that's what we do. I mean, whether we say it or not, that's kind of what we do. We look at the guys who are recorded here in Scripture and we say, well, sure, if I got the benefit of spending three years with Jesus, I'd be doing that too. It's very tempting to do that. Forget the promise that Jesus gave us when he said that, you know, there's one even greater who's coming after me. You know, or there's, I'm leaving you, you will, what did he say? He said, you will do even these things and even so far greater things because I'm giving you the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, remember their roots. Peter and John were fishermen. They weren't like Moses. They weren't like Paul. They weren't men of stature or highly educated. In fact, I won't, I won't bore you with the whole story of the Jewish educational system, but, but these, were the, these were the dropouts. You know, the plan A for every Jewish boy and girl was to finish Hebrew school and to be a rabbi. And if you didn't do that, if you couldn't cut it through the three stages of of Hebrew rabbinic school, then you went to the family business. So the simple fact that as Jesus finds these guys on the beach fishing in the family business, it means at the least that somewhere along the way they weren't good enough. They couldn't cut it. They couldn't make it in school. And yet these are the ones whom Christ selects to usher in the movement that will become the church. I have a friend, as he was teaching through um, the book of John, made the statement about how great a sense of humor that Jesus must have had to leave the future of the movement of the church in the hands of the youth group. You know, that's essentially what he did. Twelve, you know, twelve boys, young men, gathered and trained for three years, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus sends into heaven and says, All right, fellas, there you go. Take on. It just goes to show you that it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the real work here the Holy Spirit who is moving and empowering these men as they move forward. And the truth of the matter is that the way that you behave speaks volumes about the people that you spend time with. We talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago when I was here before I told you about my experience with the Christmas Cowboy Club. These guys who received Christmas uh, or cowboy clothes for Christmas, and all of a sudden his lifestyle had completely been changed. Went from being normal guys to country bumpkins. Who you spend time with directly affects how you behave. And what was said about these men in verse 13, that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was something so deeply rooted in the character of Peter and John that people took note 
that they had spent time with Jesus. That there was a radical lifestyle difference because these men had spent time with the Lord. So my question that I think we have to address this morning as, as we bring the ship into port is when presented with an opportunity to be a witness for our Savior, how bold are we about it? My fear is that far too often we're so timid about the salvation that we profess to love We almost act like we are a little bit ashamed of it. We had a tradition on Sunday mor- on uh, Christmas morning with my cousin that every morning that we got up, it was, a, it was a, a game every year to be the first one to get up the earliest and to call the other one with news about what we had received for Christmas. So, you know, it started off at 7 and 6. I think we even got up at 5.30 one year to do this. And there was an excitement about something that we had received that we wanted to share with someone else. But it's not that way with our faith. And I have to believe it's either because we don't understand the gift that we've been given or we take it so lightly that it becomes commonplace. And I have to believe that as Peter had experienced the pain that comes alongside a rejection of Jesus, the great joy that he experienced on that beach as Jesus restored him, that when faced with an opportunity to be a witness, he was not going to let that chance go by. And friends, we have to begin to see that mirrored out in our own nature and character. When people leave our company, what impression are they left with? When people stop spending time with us, what impression are they left with? You're a nice lady, you're a good businessman, lousy tipper. What impression are they left with? Or do they walk away saying that I can't put my finger on it, but that is a person who has spent time with God. I had a friend that when I was a youth pastor in, in Bartow in Polk County, he actually didn't go to my youth group. He went to my friend's youth group across town. His name was Billy. Billy was the most annoying person to hang out with I've ever experienced in my life. We went to Orlando to City Walk or something, and, and Billy was so excited. He had just terrible home life, and the Lord had redeemed him out of all of that. And everywhere we went, Billy wanted to tell people about it. I mean, it was a, you know, I, I feel horrible standing in a pulpit and saying how annoying that was. But, I mean, in line... Universal Studios, the waitress came to bring our drinks. He wanted to stop and tell her. And, you know, and at the time, I remember thinking, Billy, give it a rest. And that night, and I got home, as my wife so often does, you know, asked me about that, and, and really the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls down because I saw something in Billy's life that was not evident in my own. He was obviously a person who had spent time with Jesus and understood the magnitude of what had been done for him. So if you're taking notes, write on the bottom. Be like Billy. 
That's what we want to be. We want to be like Billy. We want to be so cognizant of what Christ has done for us that it overflows out into our life. What hope do we have to change the world? Not much. Not much. Unless we are willing to be used by the Holy Spirit to love those people in our life whom God wants to love. This is where we'll close. This is the most, this is the most radical thing that has hit me in the last two or three months. You know, a lot of times as believers, we're told that we should love the people that we're with. You know, the people that God has placed in your life as, a, as what, part of what it means to be called to be a believer, that we, are, that we should be loving them because that's what Christians do. But, again, I, I'm going to do it again. If we go back to John chapter 15 and we read when Jesus begins to talk about what it means to abide in Christ, what it means to be loved in the same way that the God the Father loves God the Son, and that same measure is the way that the Son has loved us, we are, are taught that the real purpose that you and I are to draw near to the people that God has placed in our life, the real purpose that we are to be near and loving to those who God has placed with us is not just so that we might have the chance to love them, but that God might have the chance to love them through us. We, the believers, the church, are the conduit by which Jesus is going to call out and pour out his love upon the elect. And we can't do it unless we are first abiding with Jesus and secondly, taking advantage of the opportunities that we have to be a witness. How are we going to change the world? We're going to do it by abiding in Christ and by taking advantage of of the witness opportunities that we have. We have them every day. We're going to spend a time in prayer in just a minute. And I hope that as I pray out loud in your hearts, you echo these, these same words with a deep, deep desire that God might first change us. He might first make us aware of the love that he's poured out for us. And secondly, I'm, the thing that I would ask is that you would begin to, to think about and Pray about the people that God has placed in your life who you're either not sure that they know the truth or you know for a fact they don't know the truth. Begin to think about those people and to begin an initiative of prayer that you might have an opportunity to share with them this great hope that we've received. Would you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had. I thank you for the reminder and the example that you've given us in the life of Peter and John as before the Sanhedrin, before this ruling court, these men took advantage of the opportunity that they had, putting life and health and limb aside and boldly proclaiming the word of truth. And Father, I cannot help but read these passages and be reminded of my own lack of diligence, my own shortcoming in this area, even as one who does it for a living. So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us 
Lord, that you would remind us of how much you have sacrificed for us and you would remind us both of who we are and whom we are in you. And, Father, that this overwhelming sense of thankfulness for the grace and the mercy that we have received would translate into a real and honest effort to share this love with the people who you've placed in our life. Oh, Father, would you call out to those people that we love who are not following you, who have no concept of the way that you love them. Father, would you even give us the great privilege of being a part and sharing that promise with them. Father, be glorified in our life. Be glorified in our actions. Lord, may this change that we hope to see in the world first take place with us as we learn to abide even more closely with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. No idea what the hymn is, but it's printed in your bulletin. And uh, so, 555. Five, nine, five, 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 nine. One of those we will sing. Find the one that closely matches the music, and that's the one we'll do.